We're the we're the no limit records of podcasts. All we do is put out records like every week. Na 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 na. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people to make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at Freethink. I am starting really, really quickly because I'm trying to get what I was telling Moynihan, who works at, at Michael Moynihan, who works at Vice News. Um, and Matt Welch is also here at Reason Magazine and he, he's the editor at large and he, he's listening. He was listening to what I was saying to Moynihan a moment ago, oh. which is we should just be that we should be who we are all the time unmitigated just complete full-on fifth column no we we gray pill the entire audience which is a thing that was just coined by matt Mm -hmm. welch apparently Mm -hmm. there's a red pilling that apparently happens and there's a there's some sort of black pilling which is which is something else considerably darker what happens with the black i'm I'm unaware of it Um, sean king (laughs) oh Oh, <laughs> you fake it. Leave Sean King well, alone. Well, he was trending on Twitter. Then. That's why he's in my brain. Leave um, him alone. Yeah. Um, but the gray pill is the gray pill is a little nicer. There's just a little, a little less of an edge. You know, Camille, do you know I'm not even myself with you guys? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Do you know the shit that I do when I'm by myself? It's, it's gross. I'm like, I'm like running for New York City Council. You see that, uh, that guy? Did you see that dude? His SNL oh, video came out? Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, I did see that. Yeah. Is I mean, that's, that shouldn't be bad for you. Yeah, that should but be like, good. Look, here's the thing. It is. I mean, can we just acknowledge this is kind of, you know, inching towards what you're saying. Can we just acknowledge that <laughs> deriving sexual pleasure out of someone beating you or beating up somebody else is kind of weird? <laughs> it's like, it's it fine. Do whatever you want. Fine. But like when you're like beating somebody up and like getting a hard on from it, that's not good. I just don't think that's generally good because the next step of that is Ike Turner or something like there's a there's a path here and maybe you're stopping it before you get. No, no. But I think you're Chris Brown. But but we can't misrepresent the facts here. The the man wasn't getting turned on by beating someone. He was getting turned on by being beaten, in which case. Yeah, but there's other people that are on the other side, too. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose we treat them equally. I think we should treat him. I can't. Yeah, I can't no, get we, over the. We should the, embrace uh, him and and commend him for his bravery. Yes. The yes, aesthetic, the aesthetics of having like the the wooden clothespins on the nipples, but just like <laughs> yeah, that that loses me. Yeah, it's not fun like, about that. If you That's got hot. if you the were gimp brought, is like, hotter than that. If mm, you were rendition a, to Guantanamo oh, and you were like into that and like mm, like oh, Khalid yeah. Sheikh Mohammed was like no seriously just beat me up it's fine I'm super into it that like, had it's not working that had to be a South Park episode at some point in 2003 <laughs> that we just all like memory hold they had uh, to I mean there. I would love to spend the rest of this time just talking about Matt Welch's other turn ons like so you're yeah. into the gimp you said. Yeah. Or are you saying no, that the gimp no, is actually, just better than the clothespins? Gimp is a low gimp is a low bar. All right. Like I like the clothespins are so unpleasant that it makes yeah. the gimp look good. I'm oh, not excited oh. about the gimp. Have you no, actually no. tried the clothespins on your nipples? You've tried this at some point. It's really no, uh no, have not <laughs> I don't do you think we're gaining listeners as we lose them? Or yes. like, do you think some people who are in a weird shit are like, oh, that's yes. a pretty interesting podcast? Because we just shed like 40% of our listenership right now. They're just like, yeah, but, too much. But it's the stock stock going up. The stock Patreon going people up. are going to send us immediately like 15 uh, emails about like yes. why we should like clothespins on nipples. Uh, 
ch- yeah. like either chin stroking or really angry. Like I am really mad that Moynihan says beating up, you know, women for sexual pleasure is a bad thing. I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I'm opposed to that. Oh, I'm, I'm making a, a phone. I'm call. making a phone. Oh, I'm making a phone it's call. It's super important. Yeah, You're making important. a call. You know I what I did? We're recording a podcast and you get a call. <laughs> You're actually making a call. I'm checking on something. Okay, I want to share we, something. Do you know okay. what I do when the phone rings and I'm taping a podcast? Yeah, I I turn the phone off. That's, that's what pretty I do. good. That's what that's the, that's the that's smart what I thing do. to do. In fact, I've got like a bunch of phones next to me in case yeah. anyone tries to do anything funny, <laughs> and I will turn off the device yeah, to yeah, make sure, sure it doesn't work. Sure, Camille, by the way, has killed his microphone, and we're just watching him talk on the phone with no audio. So this is is, is this going to be cut out of the podcast? No, no it's we're gonna, not. We're going to keep no, it because we're, we're going to. T- it. it's, it's about time we had an honest conversation about critical race theory. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's right. It is absolutely right. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So oh, I sorry, was just I was just confirming something with my people. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. so I have an, uh-huh. I have an announcement. I'm going to make it right now. I'm not going to say oh, a whole are. lot more about it. I'm gonna say it right now because it's right gonna drop. We're recording this on a Wednesday on a Wednesday night, so God knows yeah. when it'll come Wednesday, out. Wednesday, June, June 23rd. Wednesday, June 23rd. This this will come out tomorrow, okay. um, Thursday, June 24th. So I recorded an interview with Amy Cooper. Mm. Amy Cooper. Wait, wait, wait! Tell everybody that, that who Amy Cooper is because they'll think it's like Pat Cooper's oh, well, daughter. Some people, <laughs> yeah, some people don't know who Amy Cooper is. Amy Cooper is the woman who was walking her dog in Central Park. In the Ramble, through the Ramble at least, last year, just a little Karen. before this time. And she ran into a gentleman named Christian Cooper, no relation. Mm-hmm. And they had a confrontation of sorts. And uh, as a result, Amy Cooper was was uh, called the Central Park Karen. Mm-hmm. This is probably what you know her as. She hasn't talked to many people, but we had a conversation some time ago, recorded an extensive interview. Wait, she hasn't talked to anyone though, has she? I did it. Um, she's talked to some people, but like on, I mean, on, on, on the like record? CNN and a couple of other media outlets, but I think it was just kind of like very quick, like happenstance, like they happened to get her on the phone, that sort of situation as opposed Recently. to Recently. Here's my formal comment. And yeah, I don't, it's been months, if yeah, not yeah, more yeah. than a year since yeah. she's had any sort of actual comments for the press beyond press releases um, or lawyers speaking on her behalf. But we had a conversation. Um, and I've done some additional subsequent reporting, and that's all I'm going to say about it right now. So can but I ask you one more. question? I'm going to ask can. you one question. You so can. I may, I may answer out. your question. You may yeah. answer it. But you guys but know all the things. I know all the things, but other people yeah. don't know the things. So yeah. I'm going to pretend that I don't know the things. Right. <laughs> Stossel voice. Stossel that's, voice. That's, that's what, so what you're saying is Karen is a bad thing? <laughs> so, like, but, you know, everyone knows what they know about this, right? Mm-hmm. And it came out. There's been really no subsequent reporting. I know she filed a lawsuit against her company for, for like a wrongful dismissal thing. Franklin Templeton, former employer. Yeah. But there was something that motivated you to kind of relitigate this because we know what we know, right? So mm-hmm. there's, you found other things. And I know you're not going to say what it is, but we're not just going to hear you talk to her about why were you you know, choking your dog and being racist or something. There's more to the story is what is what you're implying. Yes, there's there's more to the story than most people imagine. Um, some of these things have been reported, um, unfortunately, and I, I think it's an important aspect of why this is an important story for us to pay some attention to. Plenty of important details about this story are known, have yeah. been known for some time, 
and have not been reported, which is, I think, a searing indictment of the media industry broadly and of, of sort of the populace more broadly. I mean, I, I think we are profoundly incurious. We have some rather convenient familiar narratives about race and racial injustice, and they tend to fill in all of the blanks for us uh, pretty effortlessly. But I, I really don't want to say too much more because mm. I, I, I want to, to – I don't want to steal Amy's thunder uh, in the yeah. context of the interview that we did. And it, it, I really do think it's very important, um, and I'm, I'm actually really grateful for Amy for, to, for trusting me to yeah. do the interview yeah. Yeah. And, um, and have a conversation with her. It's one of those things where I'm, I don't work for Amy. <laughs> like, mm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not obliged to make her look good. Um, but I'm also not the sort of person that's interested in doing interviews with people for the purposes of assaulting and savaging them. That's not really what I'm up to. So at any rate, there'll be more about that in the future. I'm, I'm just, I'm very excited to be able to share that with folks. Yeah. We've, we've been, been hinting it for at this, a couple weeks, uh, on the Patreon. So, so yeah. Patreon listeners know something was, uh, brewing that you were working on something. But yeah. to that point, Camille, I think it's, it's, um, regardless of what, comes out of the interview, what she says, if there's new information, if there's no new information, well, it is, it is, and there is new information, uh -huh. um, but it is a kind of requirement of journalists. And this is to your point of like the lack of curiosity amongst uh, certain journalists, because, you know, it might, it might sort of upset the narrative in some way is that even if everything we knew about Amy Cooper or thought we knew about her turned out to be true, it is incumbent upon somebody to, talk to this woman a year after her life was completely blown up mm -hmm. and it was blown up at a time that was the beginning of COVID and people were at home and there was a real a pylon that I think probably was magnified by the fact that we were all in lockdown and, and, and COVID was happening. Mm -hmm. But you know, even if, if you know what you found out about her <clears throat> confirmed everything that we all thought we knew it's, it's, you it know, everybody be should be trying yeah. to find out what her side of the story is because she, she didn't speak and not, you know, coming to this conclusion like, well, she's a bad person. So therefore we don't speak to her. And yeah. that is actually a really, really surprisingly common thing these days. I mean, really common. And that's not mm -hmm. me being conspiratorial. People just don't want to talk to the bad guy. And of course there is the word reporting that has been <laughs> replaced with the verb platforming. It's mm -hmm. like, you don't want to platform this person. It's like, no, no, it's called reporting. And we want to talk to this person. And we can talk to good people, bad people, people in the middle. And that is fine. So I'm happy that you did it. And I'm shocked that uh, nobody else has. But, uh, well, but good on you for, for chasing it down and uh, getting her to agree. So I'm looking forward to it. Because I, I haven't heard it. Matt hasn't either. I will say that uh, I, had, I had a good... Uh, turnaround moment on my uh, awful 12 year old uh, daughter and if she's listening sorry i don't, I don't mean that uh which is that she uh at the dinner table the other day uh announced that uh one of the things that people are uh laughing at at tiktok are uh coupon karens oh what's that uh, like Karens apparently who like uh, clip all the coupons and that's all they really care about and uh and her mother and I um, turned on her pretty viciously by saying, you spend all your day trying to police the language of people in the name of, of uh, you know, you want to reverse discrimination and, you know, negative stereotypes about people. You're mm. going to make fun of people 
poor people? Clip coupons? <laughs> that's the, the trick is to attack poor people? Mm. That's what you're doing. And then she tried to, no, it's not poor people. It's just the people who like, who like, you know, lord them around. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who are like that, waving the thing? coupon. No, it's not a good thing. They're absolutely making fun. Imperiously of, waiting in line like, with their coupons. Coupon Karens. <laughs> Matt, uh, is, this, is, this a, is this a thing that we want to do? Do you really want to share this story in the context of this podcast? Which is yes. really heard by Absolutely. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Absolutely. Yes. No, okay. people, uh, they especially need to know that coupon Karens are being attacked ruthlessly by Matt's daughter. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a, it's a thing that happens const- so often that we don't, uh, usually remark on it, um, mm-hmm. is the way that people in the name of allegedly combating, you know, negative collective stereotypes mm-hmm. about people. Mm-hmm. Just engage in negative collective stereotypes about people, total yeah. strangers all the time mm-hmm. by calling them Karens, by calling them whatever, Chads. I don't know what the uh, the name is, although Chads kind of have it coming. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, like it's, it is it is so constant all the time in every bit of like discourse and right and left um, that uh, that we we almost don't even observe it. But it's there mm-hmm. and, and it's there specifically in those conversations that are supposed to be about discrimination. And it's worth like turning that shit around you know you know what's funny about this is that there was a time in the 80s right when you could write um you know american psycho or you could write bonfire of the vanities and there was a separate class of people in new york who were like you know hedge well they weren't hedge fund people at the time they were just like wall street people right the gordon geckos the greed is good bonds traders yeah Yeah. like just like the bad guys that were those people still exist in New York and I interact with them and I see them all the time. They're all like, you know, not Republicans to put it that way. They're all like, you know, in line with the kind of Brooklyn ideology for, for lack of a a better phrase. So I've realized that everybody kind of finds the, they don't really hate them anymore because they're like them. Maybe they don't like, you know, on paper, they don't like, they know they're not paying enough taxes and they're these guys that are making this funny money and not really working, et cetera. But, you know, the people themselves, you know, because if you, if you have a kid in private school, you inter- interact with these people all the time and they're yeah. like, we need more CRT. They're like, we don't even have it. It's like, yes, I know. We need more of it. <laughs> and then they're literally like short selling like a company into to the toilet as they're saying like we need this so the, the funny thing about it is like at the end i realize and this is not just the trump thing just erase the trump thing the thing that none of these people actually like are poor people they really don't i mean it's really really funny kind of like know, camille yeah well yeah but that's hey, the that right is not, kind of that is not true no, no, it's not that, camille doesn't dislike I, poor people he I do likes not dislike fancy poor things. people that's exactly yeah. right i like very fancy things i like exclusive things i don't want to wait in a line with anyone i don't care yeah. if you're poor no, or long. wealthy i yeah. want to get in first i want very special treatment i want the best possible treatment for All myself that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean I don't want good treatment for everyone else. And that doesn't mean I want you to be impoverished. I want better treatment than people who have more money than me. I don't care. Mm. I just want yeah. the best for yeah. myself. The best. Yeah. Is that so the wrong? Best. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't hate anyone. I do hate coach. Um, and I will say that forever. And do you know, by to the, the extent way, the, possible, I will never fly is, that is, shit. The secret of this <laughs> podcast is that Camille is associated with the Never Fly Coach, which, of course, is the very, very exclusive level on the Patreon, the Never yes. Fly Coach uh, class, yes. which we have a lot of people on. Um, the Some thing is, is that's it. associated with Camille. But the fact of the matter is, it's kind of 
I don't fly coach either. I don't really like to. <laughs> and that's a development that's only happened because when you fly a lot, you just keep getting upgraded. And not like tra- not like transatlantic or to mm-hmm, California, mm-hmm. just on like the small like you know that's right East Coast flights. Yeah, and I was <laughs> I was just going to change a flight to get home from California, and they couldn't. <laughs> this is true. I swear to God, a true story. I can show you the evidence. And I said I'm not going to change to this earlier flight because they wouldn't because uh, I was in first class and they wouldn't put me in first class. They didn't have any seats, so I said, okay, I'll wait for the next flight. That flight was canceled, and I had to stay an extra day. Because I wouldn't um, uh, wow. do the non-first class. <laughs> so I'm just like, I've become you. So and, there's uh, only one man good. of people here. That's what yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I know you, you have a Kia. And, yeah, except, uh, you, except when we went to Miami, I made sure that you got to fly first class too, asshole. So that you could tell me that you made that you did it for me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, not the, yeah, yeah. Not, not, won't oh, be the when last he was in time. first class. He was like yelling at immigrants. He was like, he was horrible. <laughs> He's yelling there at were no immigrants in the plane, but he was just like, enough. I don't want them. Like, and pinching just, the ass of every receptionist. I know. Every, uh, not a receptionist. Airline airline is stewardess is sexist, isn't it? You can't say that. Uh, flight no, attendant. it's nostalgic. Flight attendant. That's right. <laughs> Waitress in the sky. Um, we all know. Can I, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, Good hey, replacement song. So Chris Rufo was supposed to be with us this week. Chris Rufo um, has become a bit more of a lightning rod than he was even last week. He's um, on Joy Reid tonight. Had, He's yeah, on Joy Reid tonight, yeah. I know. That's why I mentioned it. Um, he had a Washpo um, write-up. I believe NBC has recently written something up. Was it New York Mag or something that just New, did a the New Yorker had one on that, that he said was pretty fair. The Washington Post was a hit piece. They've had to correct a bunch of stuff. Yeah, Wash, Washpo had to make four, if I'm not mistaken, at least four major corrections to yeah. that to that piece. Um, but I, I do look forward to having Chris on. He is committed to coming next week. So yeah. I'm saying it publicly. And if he doesn't show up, it's because he's scurred. And I yeah. just want to put that Scarf. on the record. He's well, he's Scarf. on Joy Raid show, so which means that if Chris Rufo's family watches it, she's going to double her viewership, and that's going yeah. to be very exciting oh, for Joy Raid. Oh, uh, you yeah. saw that she has like the lowest numbers in oh, the really? history. Yeah, it was. It was. Well, this uh, will help her. Tweeted this will help uh, her. by somebody today. Actually, I think I think it was Glenn Greenwald, probably because he loves yeah. gloating about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a weird thing. He's just like, and you know what it is? Is because it's they not, stopped inviting not him weird. on MSNBC. It's not weird. The word the like, word for it is petty. But it's I mean, petty. I mean petty and not like. <laughs> I don't mean petty in a derogatory way. I mean it in an urban way. Like I'm gonna be petty. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what I mean. Urban. <laughs> in an urban way. Yeah, there we go. We have a we have a particular way that we talk in the yeah. hood, yes. as they say. Yeah. Um well, yeah, you, so Chris Rufo Chris Rufo <laughs> will be around eventually. Um this week, I don't even know what we're doing this week. I mean, there's plenty that we could do. I know you gentlemen um had an exciting uh Juneteenth. Uh when we last recorded no. the episode, that was before Juneteenth became formally a federal holiday. Mm-hmm. Now it is a federal holiday. Can you can you guys tell me what you what you did, Matt? I saw a picture of you in a dashiki, mm-hmm. which was great with the yes. kente cloth scarf mm. um, at the Juneteenth. I had a carnival. Ke- I had a kegger in my front yard for Juneteenth. Yeah. That's that's yeah. traditional, right? That's very nice. Um, is that, that was, is that offensive? I, I mean, everything no. is. So I don't know. I think is that's. That, that, <laughs> that's fine? I'm sure there's some way to construe that as offensive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to try. Uh, but it the uh, keg, the kegger had been planned a little bit longer than the federal holiday had been planned. <laughs> 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 so uh, 
it was it was fine. It was great. Uh, I love the fact that uh, the New York um, uh, mayor's race, uh, which we talked about in the last episode with Harry Siegel, um, the the last minute push for Eric Adams, who looks like he probably won the Brooklyn Borough President. It's a ranked choice thing, and um, mm-hmm. I think he got thirty two percent so far in the first round, next to twenty one percent for a couple of of uh, second and third places. But uh, uh, his closing thing just for the election was that it's uh, racist that uh, Andrew Yang <laughs> and Catherine Garcia decided to have a ranked choice alliance and they announced mm-hmm. that on Juneteenth and that just <laughs> that sends a lot of messages about poll taxes our people know the history uh, we know what's going on uh, right. unbelievable like that's yeah. his closing pitch and it worked yeah that's just a, it's a good sign of the times did he uh, really make that pitch that was a, that's an honest he absolutely yes he he uh, uh cut and paste <laughs> he like gathered together a bunch of surrogates to come and say this is voter suppression voters this is the, the, the thing that's voter suppression uh, this is the next mayor of new york is it's fantastic he's throwing race r bombs at everybody like there's yeah. a good there's a good piece by david friedlander in the new york magazine he was asked about it on the campaign trail a few days before the election he said that is disgustingly racist <laughs> wow kick the guy off of his election night party it's like no you can't come in here there's not enough room for you racist wow. uh, is, is, uh, david friedlander who's uh, an old colleague of mine and uh, an underrated um a reporter racist he's a, very, he's he's a, a fine <laughs> he's a fine reporter he's a fine reporter <laughs> he's very he's very he's very good on um on new york stuff i think he was at the because i worked with the daily beast i think he was at the observer before that but he's a very smart guy yeah but uh they went that's that's what that's how he spent his last 72 hours is on on juneteenth called yang and Catherine garcia who's white and yang i think is asian um whatever that means and Cashew eric garcia adams is, is is uh Catherine Garcia is white, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, who and Eric Adams is black, uh, although none of those uh, categories exist. Um, but then he called uh, they called him uh, the racist, and then like was asked about it on the Sunday shows, like you don't really mean this, do you? And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah totally mean this. Um, that and that's what he kept hitting the last uh, seventy two hours, and it worked. So. Is Cass- Catherine Garcia married to somebody who's Hispanic? Is that the Garcia? I'm just wondering. Uh, because this stuff is really important these days, and if, if if it was two years ago, I never would have asked you this question. But <laughs> although I, I just I, don't care, there are all but. these maps maps in the New York Times showing the neighborhoods and the different yeah, yeah, concentration yeah, yeah. of votes, and of course, it's a very ethnic and racial map. Um, yep. And all yep. these people, uh, this the election was yesterday on Tuesday. Today's Wednesday. Uh, all these people today have been like, "Gosh, that's so striking. It's so strange." That New York politics <laughs> yeah. would be like ethnic and racial based as, like, as it has been you, since the the foundation since, of New York as a, yeah since yeah. like 1612 yeah, yeah like yeah. when the yeah. Dutch were like uh, <laughs> hurling <laughs> shit at the Indians or something uh, yeah it's been like that forever yeah that was uh, that was a so that was my Juneteenth my, well what was my Juneteenth um, I think I was just working in the yard probably. Hmm. Just putting know. the lawn jockeys in one by one in the yard. Oh, that's a little, this that's, is really weird. I'd say that that's a little, that's actually a little problematic. Uh, as um, just want to say. It was of my own volition. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, yeah, I mean, still a little problematic. But I was going to send this to you, Camille, but I was driving by too fast and I'm trying to remember where it was. But there is, I was going to send you, there is a, a out in 
East Egg. Um, there mm. was a uh, was there a Juneteenth festival. There were, uh, I think there were like a hundred of them. Honestly, yeah. Just like, everybody <laughs> like we're it was it was this festival was called We're Really Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it was called We're Really Sorry Don Lemon, uh, who lives down the street. Um, um, <laughs> no, but like I literally drove by a lawn jockey that was I think clearly painted white. Oh my god! Oh, yeah, no. I'm trying. I have, wow. to go, I have to take a picture of it. It was like a white because I I saw it. And I was like, "Holy shit, a lawn jockey! That's crazy!" <laughs> Albino lawn. And then I got closer, wow. and I was like, "Oh my god, it's Sean King!" No, um, uh, <laughs> come on, come on. No. I come on, I do man. not I do come not on, just, support I, that. You know, I don't. he's just doing the thing, right? <laughs> I don't father. support. Notice notice father how Camille sick, comes sick, in, right? Breathing fire about how like we should just go balls to the wall, gray pilling, and when we even say something as lawn jockey is a thing, it's like you know it's a thing. No, it's can, a real we can thing. Pictures about the long jockey. I, I yeah. just don't want to take shots Muhammad at Sean King. Are a I, thing. I just don't want to take shots at Sean. Yeah, King, no, no. The only thing is, I'm trying. I mean, it, it's not controversial because I would absolutely, judging from today, have all of Black Twitter on my side. For making that joke about Sean King, because literally the only reason he's kind of fallen out of my mouth twice now is uh, he was uh, being beaten up on Twitter because it was a Tamir Rice's mother yeah. like, attacked him. Mm-hmm. And basically accused him of uh, of you know. stealing tons of money yeah. from from the family, or it, it, and it's actually very hard to to disentangle exactly what's going on there. It does it does seem to me, having taken more than a, a slightly more significant than cursory look at the controversy attached to him um, with respect to Tamir Rice's mom, that he probably didn't steal a bunch of money from her, and that there's just a bunch of internet cap, as the as the kids say. Um, about like Sean having re- raised a million plus dollars and like only given her forty thousand dollars or something like that, and a minimum it seems like yeah. like Ben Crump kind of co-signed him and and said that that you know he his thing was legitimate. But she attacked I don't know. Ben Crump and Al Sharpton too, by the way. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that there's some disappointment and frustration there. That there's a feeling that you know other people have gotten very nice while they perhaps haven't benefited nearly as much as they feel like they ought to. And I, I wouldn't doubt that there's some truth to that. But it's also the case that, you know, grieving mom of a child who was killed under tragic circumstances, mm-hmm. who uh, the, the person's death becomes a rallying cry. Their name and visage is all over T-shirts and constantly in the mouth of journalists. And it just I can only imagine how difficult, yeah. difficult a position that is for this. And you can't control this. There's this yeah. word that is overused in the Trump era, uh, which we don't really live in anymore, but some of the language uh, lives on, uh, mm. which is grifter. And it's mm-hmm. a shame because there's something uh, true behind it, um, like in the legalized kind of graft type of way, which is to say, wherever there is a political outrage, mm-hmm. uh, and this speaks some, to some of them. Someone is making some money. Mm-hmm. Someone has a 501c3. Someone has yeah. an email into your inbox saying, I can't believe they're doing this to you. Uh, someone is raising money <laughs> off of it. In this is also true in tragedies, famously, all you know, people claiming to be the Red Cross, sometimes even the Red Cross itself, um, will sponge all this sentiment in the form of dollars. And, uh, and it's rare to find uh, an outfit that channels that money specifically to the purposes that are desired by the people paying it. Um, your outrage people out there in the world 
those who are not taking the gray pills but taking the other colors, um, <laughs> is a wonderful commodity for a whole host of people. A lot, a lot of those people will switch on a dime. They will go from spooning up your outrage, uh, hoovering it up uh, for <laughs> Republicans. They will turn it and do it from uh, d- Democrats. I mean, the whole uh, Lincoln uh, project is just a, a classic <laughs> uh, bunch of people who went from this one to that one. But there's that, that whole churn exists everywhere. It certainly exists in the world of... Of uh, controversial or racialized uh, police shootings and and uh, and outrages, like uh, things happening at a at a uh, a company, um, uh, companies being accused of being racist. There's going to be certain organizations that show up on the doorstep and say, "You know what? I got things for you to do uh, right now to make your image better." Like there's just entire industries everywhere associated with that, and it's not special to any particular wing of politics i don't think or even uh the you know set of issues it's just everywhere around you um so just know like when you're in total mid froth going out there um you are like a perfect perfect mark for a lot of these people economists economists have all sorts of weird kind of things that they study and you you know you hear it if if and in the popular sense you can hear it on the freakonomics podcast a very good podcast by the way and mm-hmm. you'd be like you know happiness or something you know we're, we're you know studying happiness we're studying this weird thing we're studying that like weird and economists you know there's so many of them and they do these little kind of very specific things that are often fairly interesting the one thing i would recommend to economists that they would do is get a sense and get some uh, dollar figures on the outrage economy. Because the outrage economy is a huge economy, right? And it's, it's, it's both the Lincoln Project and BLM and the opposition to those things, right? So every time that these things pop up, there's somebody making huge amounts of money. Matt, you tweeted today, um, uh, one of America's best scholars, um, and, and by best, I mean incoherent. It's like, that's like kind of like bad is good. It's like best for me means incoherent. The best scholar, Ibram X. Kendi, who made $25,000 of taxpayer money at some local school board meeting or some local school board retreat, I think in South Carolina, North Carolina. That's a lot of money. And if for, if, for a 45 minute Zoom presentation, for 45 minutes from his fucking living room. I mean, mm-hmm. that is an outrage. It's like, look. You can be so outraged at, at um, the amount of tax Jeff Bezos pays. There's no shortage of outrage there. And, you know, the guy's actually producing something. We can say that. And you can say, well, maybe we should pay more taxes, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, everyone's participating in Amazon Prime Day. So people are actually getting something from Jeff Bezos' creation. Ibram X. Kendi making $25,000 of taxpayer money on a school district, which I'm sure is not like overflowing with cash is an actual outrage when you consider what the average salary of somebody in that area of North Carolina or South Carolina is. I guarantee you it's not something in the order of $150,000 a year. That is disgusting. And the fact that he is not taking that and giving it away, look, I mean, you look at at the Lincoln Project. You brought up the Lincoln Project. I'm going to take on the other side. Um, uh, Steve Schmidt. I saw him do a Zoom call himself. And he was doing it from his kitchen. I think it was in MSNBC or something. And I looked at it and I was like, man, I wish I could afford that fucking kitchen in the wolf stove <laughs> and this enormous <laughs> granite <laughs> countertop. And like, it's a nice kitchen. And I'm like, what does Steve Schmidt do? What does he actually do? Tell me what he does beyond pedal outrage and saying, we are going to do something about this. Well, the voters did something about it in, in 2020. And was it because of the Lincoln Project? I highly doubt it. 
It was because Donald Trump was an oafish, apish person who kind of, you know, willed the election away from himself. But Steve Schmidt will, of course, take credit for it. I mean, you, you know, why, why wouldn't he? But these guys promise a lot, do very little, and rake in money from people who are properly, in a lot of cases, outraged. And say, well, if you give it to me, we'll get rid of that outrage. I mean, or at least mitigate the outrage. And by the way, I'm going to buy myself a really nice. What do you deserve as a, as a salary for somebody who's just taking in donations and doing absolutely fuck all but going on to, you know, Joy Reid show and, and calling yourself a Republican, which you stopped I mean, think of five years ago. Think about Steve Schmidt's old partner at the Lincoln Project and elsewhere in the McCain campaign, John Weaver. Um, he was for uh, two years, Sexy three years. John for- Weaver. Oh, uh, years. Uh, the sole employee of the uh, like of uh, the Nambla? the pack the pack or whatever it is <laughs> associated with John Kasich. All right. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, John Kasich, who whose only activity over the last period of time was as a paid CNN contributor, where he was supposed yeah. to give us really wise insight about whatever. Um, and so the John Kasich pack, which he fundraised by saying, hey, didn't you look at uh, John on uh, CNN? Wasn't he great talking about this? Let's give us money because, hey, maybe he'll run for president. Not really sure. Uh, Weaver got just super high six figures. I don't have it in front of me. It could have been 400, 300 in that in that range for a thing that does nothing. That was never yeah. going to go anywhere. And that's just kind of like normal standard churn. And again, Steve Schmidt, Lincoln Project, he's the guy within McCain world who was the loudest champion for Sarah Palin. So the guy who was in high dudgeon about Donald Trump was the champion for Sarah Palin. Now, Sarah Palin wasn't um, the total caricature that she ended up becoming at the time. She was actually kind of an interesting um, uh, governor of Alaska. She had different qualities about her. Yeah, I think but Bill still, Crystal was pushing her a little bit too after a, Crystal, a Crystal weekly pusher, standard cruise that they stopped in Alaska, I think. But in terms of people who were on uh, McCain's campaign, and there was a divide over it, it was Schmidt who like uh, like had the had the winning hand. So like I saw so many Democratic friends are like, uh, you know, these Lincoln Project guys, they're really, you know, they're onto something. That could be the future of politics. Like, dude. Do not bet on Steve Schmidt unless you're building kitchens, um, <laughs> and he might pay you a lot. Beautiful, of money. beautiful kitchen that he has, and uh, I don't know why he deserves <laughs> such a beautiful kitchen because he goes on um, MSNBC and says exactly. And by the way, um, to be fair, the Trump uh, campaign b- became something like this too in 2020. Uh, of just just raking in donations from credulous people who you know we say like oh you know give us money and and you know we'll stop the steal or whatever. There's a various oh God, iterations st- of this. Still are in still 2021. Are, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The yeah. This is not. This is no ideology. Crazy. I mean, this is a yeah. scam. Washington D.C. is not what you think it is. You, it's not those movies that you see where like people are making like these sinister backrooms. Those happen, of course. But the worst part about it, the most common part about it, where all the money changes hands are bullshit think tanks bullshit lobbyists fake 501c3 groups that you know take money from stupid credulous people who are hyper ideological or too rich uh and have absolutely no sense i mean where does all this money come from it comes from the government you see all these like i mean new york i mean new york and dc are similar as far as like real estate prices it's crazy because there's so much money sloshing around in dc for what i mean Look at all these people that work for Clinton. Look at all these people who work for Bush. All these people go in. And that was the first thing that Donald Trump said that was actually fairly sensible was a ban on lobbying after, you know, doing your, your two-year stint in Congress 
and then like just immediately cycling out so you can get all the uh, lottery winnings from from being uh, a lobbyist. Is that a sensible thing? Well, you know, there's, you know, good parts about that and, and bad parts. But that was like smart populism and saying, like, we want to drain the swamp. These guys are scumbags. But that never, I think, went anywhere. As he said that, and it kind of disappeared. But but D- D.C. is a fetid swamp. And that is something that Donald Trump made swampier and worse. But that's what happens every time. Every administration makes it worse and worse. Nobody's talking, of course, about Hunter Biden because, you know, that's the stuff of Steve Bannon and the New York Post. It's very odd, isn't it? But all the stuff that comes out, because the Daily Mail keeps trickling this stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's not about Joe Biden. Like I don't, I don't think this. This doesn't change my mind on Joe Biden at all. But every presidential son, vice presidential son, from you know Roger Clinton and Billy Carter, etc., try to make enormous amounts of money off of the political success of their siblings or people in their family. And that is kind of sick. And you should actually look at that stuff and not say, oh, the Republicans are trying to, you know, dislodge Joe Biden. You know, it's, it's nothing that I, I don't care about Joe Biden in the context of those stories, but it is emblematic of everything that is wrong with Washington because, you know, if you look at the Hunter Biden stuff, it's, it's pretty fucking gross. In fact, you, you're going to get rich by being a family member of a president or a vice president or something, mm-hmm. uh, or even a governor. You're going to get rich unless you're a total degenerate drug addict. You have to be <laughs> so – Roger Clinton and, and yeah. Billy Carter. Yeah, There's exactly. a reason why we, we, we mentioned those. Oh, those guys in that case, trash. you actually have to get like caught doing something. Yeah. Otherwise, you're probably fine. Yeah. Probably fine. Um, I wanted to ask a question about Hugh this – um, <laughs> well, well, first of all, first of all, your Juneteenth, Camille, is also oh. your wedding anniversary. So that's true. We got some queries like that's yeah. that's on purpose. You right? got queries about about my wedding anniversary, mm-hmm. dude. Do you have you ever Googled yourself? I mean, you know, I put it down. Don't worry about that, baby. What's oh, going take on? Care, Google? Take care of business. Like, what about my Google? Is, no, like if you do, like it's both of you guys, Camille Foster, and immediately it's like wife. Yeah, uh, like people. Mm-hmm. But that's just because they want to know if she's white. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that is. That's what that is. Oh, I can tell you right now. I'm, I'm aware. Uh, um, but know. that's not true for Moynihan. You know, it's, Unless, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. it might be. I've been, I've been my <laughs> for own. For different reasons. I have a sexual Sean King thing going on where I just ex- <laughs> pretend that everybody that I'm with is not uh, Irish America. I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, I got my, my, you know, as, my as beautiful bride <laughs> from Angola. <laughs> People start Googling. You know, it's amazing, Camille, that your uh, that your wife is is not white. You seem like is you it? should. Yes, because I seem like I should have a white wife. Yeah, because I no. I read Twitter. No, 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 I read Twitter, Matt. <laughs> okay. Have okay. you ever been on Twitter? It's really, really informative. On Twitter, yeah. it says Camille yeah. is a mm. traitor to the yes. race that he doesn't even believe that he is a part of. Yeah, so self hating. I'm I'm work. shocked. I'm sold that, my soul, and it's not worth it. Whatever yeah. they're paying me isn't worth it. What are they blah, paying blah, blah, blah. you? Uh, not enough. It's true. That, <laughs> that's the actually they? that's the only thing that they get right. Exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's never enough. I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, you didn't answer the this, question about Juneteenth, Camille. Uh, oh, what about it? I mean, I, I was it's your wedding in, anniversary. It's your wedding anniversary. No, my wedding anniversary was was brilliant and wonderful. Um, and on Juneteenth, there was a, a festival in Tiburon, uh, which is kind of astonishing. You should just Google the demographics for Tiburon. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Just Google it. 
Um, and uh, were you the king of? Yeah, the I, I thought for half of no, <laughs> no, I was not. Thankfully, um, someone did attempt to take a picture of me and my daughter sitting at a table because oh, we just no. went to get ice cream, and oh, there's no. only so many places to get ice cream. We were not at the festivities, um, but we were we were adjacent to them, and someone like you know smiling, someone like started to posture as if they were going to take a photo of us together at the table eating ice cream. It's like, do you mind if I? It's like, yeah, I do. Like, no thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> no thanks uh, and honestly i suspect if it wasn't for juneteenth i probably would have been fine with it I, I, i'm on record here i think juneteenth is a perfectly fine holiday in yeah, fact no, i think it's a, think a wonderful agree, yeah. idea yep. um i i am bitter with i'm gonna say you people and mm-hmm. i'm not referring to anyone on the podcast i'm certainly not referring to most of our fine listeners but some of y'all listening I, you people have ruined it you people have completely politicized it forever, and I don't think it will ever be something that I don't <laughs> You're talking have about a little lights? bit of resentment for. When <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, when it when it comes and goes, um, and yeah, I resisted. I resisted the urge to talk to the guy who was draped in kinte cloth, getting ready to perform on stage for the Juneteenth festival about the Ashanti and the fact that they were slave traders. And mm. it's like, you know, that's kind of what that's their thing. <laughs> You're such it's a little weird that you're wearing that on Juneteenth in celebration. It's, race dick. <laughs> that's what it is. it's just weird. It's just yeah. weird that you would do that. Yeah. Granted, look, the thing has like a bunch of a bunch of meanings and and context that it it develops later on down the line and obviously it's not a symbol of slavery but those are the idiotic rules that they play by like right like nuance is never sufficient to excuse someone who has run afoul of some ridiculous standard um that is supposed to guide whether or not something is you know flattery perfectly acceptable behavior or cultural appropriation or whatever the hell so anyways i i don't i didn't pay much attention to it. I spent a bunch of time with my kid and my wife and we had, we had a marvelous time and that's, uh, that's all there is to j- it. Just to that point though, I'm reading a, um, a biography of Jefferson uh, right now, a recent biography of Jefferson mm-hmm. that I just came across, decided to pick it up. And I think that it's, it's funny when you talk about that and you know, the flattening of, of history to, you know, good guys and bad guys and this sort of binary mm-hmm. thing. It's mm-hmm. it, it, beyond the fact that it gets us nowhere. And I think it, it actually produces brain rot in so many ways is that it's actually just boring because I think one of the most fascinating things, particularly about Jefferson is Jefferson, unlike some of the founders was, was a terrific writer, really, really skilled stylist and had these totally complicated views, which I think the important point of this book and as others I've read about Jefferson is trying to figure out how somebody can own slaves, have, you know, what we're pretty, pretty sure that it wasn't his brother that uh, have a relationship with a slave in Sally Hemings and be so sort of intellectually opposed to slavery in so many points in his life and writing quite eloquently about it. How does that exist? How does that coexist? Rather than just dismissing him as a slave owner, and but that's a imp- very important point that everyone should know about Thomas Jefferson, the complicating factor of this and how he wrestled with this is really, really interesting. And I don't have any interest when I'm reading a book about Thomas Jefferson to say, okay, is it, is it one where it say he says he's a good guy? Or is it one that he says he's a bad guy? Because I want the good guy one or I want the bad guy one. Those don't really exist if you're actually a real scholar of this sort of point in American history, which is why 
I kind of cringe at the 1619 project, which is different, I think, from a lot of other people's cringes, is that I just don't think that it does justice to the complications of this stuff. And I've also mentioned Sean Willens's, uh, Sean Willens's book, No Property of Man, which, you know, discusses the founding documents uh, as kind of anti-slavery in a, in a kind of subterranean way and how it happened. And it's a really, really smart kind of look at it. And you can disagree with it too, but these things are super duper complicated. And what frustrates me more than anything is somebody who actually cares about this stuff. And in the past, when it, particularly in German history, and I wrote a, my dissertation on Daniel Goldhagen's book, that I was interested in those complications of, you know, what Goldhagen said about the Germans in the Holocaust and said, well, you know, they were all just anti-Semites. That was just inevitable. Uh, and the pushback in that, and it was a huge, the ferment was crazy, a huge debate, books about the book, etc. And then to see now all this stuff flattened to, well, there was good guys and bad guys. And if they're bad guys, we should scrub their names from things and mm-hmm. make sure they never exist in the public imagination again, because they can't have done something good if they did something terribly bad. That's not exactly right. Um, and it doesn't mean that one, you know, papers over or just does a little end run around the bad things that people do. Um, obviously, with Jefferson, there's quite a bit of that. But to ignore the other stuff is to just be sort of intellectually impoverished about the founding of the United States. And it's what and really bums me out. And also, like, in order for bad things to give way to good things or to give way to their eradication – people on the fence are going to jump off one way or the other. So knowing uh, what their role is in yeah. that, how they felt about it, and maybe they didn't make the right decision, but they did lay some of the intellectual gra- groundwork. That is super fascinating. That's fascinating uh, just for people who are interested in the art of persuasion. Like, yeah. you know, uh, how did it work for them? Like, what was ultimately persuasive? Um, all of that is is uh, tremendously interesting, more than, like, you know, finding someone yeah. with... Uh, a mythical perfect halo of which there's basically nobody. Yeah, and t- I want to just yeah. before we move on, I want to indict myself quickly because yeah. I, oh. I, yeah, well, I moved on from something that in the past I remember in the context of something else, which is which is why this happened. I read uh, W. E. B. Du Bois's uh, unbelievably insane obituary <laughs> for Stalin. He became a Stalinist oh. at the end of his life. <laughs> And uh-huh. I talked endlessly about this because I was so fascinated by it because I went to university where uh, Du Bois was, the library was renamed while I was there, the W.E.B. Mm-hmm, du Bois mm-hmm, Library at the mm-hmm. University of Massachusetts. And so um, it was kind of a feature in, in my life in a way. And so it meant a lot. I was like, holy shit, this guy was like an insane Stalinist who was like defending somebody who was a mass murderer. And I, you know, harped on that quite a bit. It was only later that I, it was David Lovering Lewis's book, uh, who our friend Nancy uh, has some connection to, by the way, who won a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize for his books about, about Du Bois, that going backwards, I realized how utterly fascinating Du Bois was and how much, a yeah. fantastic writer too. And he's the reverse case where as he gets younger, I mean, there's a lot of these people, as he gets, you, if you go the Benjamin Button route, he's smarter and more interesting. And I was mm. stupid because I was binary about it. And I was like, what a fucking psycho commie Stalinist. And I mm-hmm. didn't realize how much interesting stuff was out there. Um, and I've done this. And I didn't do this for the Panthers, though, because the Panthers are, I looked into it and they just suck. That's a whole, that's very, very different Good typography, W.E.B. Yeah, w- yeah. w- du Bois's uh, seminal work, What the Souls of Black Folk, Souls of Black Folk is, yeah. uh, is his book. Um, but also, uh, I believe W.E.B. Du Bois is the 
effectively one of the founders, if not a co-founder of Black History Month. Am I right about that? I don't know. Is that true? Or is that Carter G. Woodson? Could be Woodson. Sometimes I'm messing that up. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But at any rate, um, there are plenty of things we could talk about. I did. And I was going to ask, there's a couple of things. I want to talk about um, Afghanistan maybe briefly um, and this, this Pentagon report. <laughs> but but I'm also interested in talking about some other stuff. There was this weird story um, that was not only in the Washington Post, but in a bunch of other places. And I suppose we can go there now because we were just talking about kind of flattening. And the headline was traffic deaths fall heavier on black Americans. The subhead disparity is likely a result of existing inequities being compounded, experts say. Um, wow. But this story is reported <laughs> all over the place and, and generally in the same like dire tones and oftentimes in ways that I think are just like objectively false. Uh, there's an NBC, an NBC headline. Black people are more likely to die in traffic accidents, period. COVID made it worse, period. I now, that's just not true. I just even, I even, the studies, even the studies don't actually support this. And then if you go further, more black people died in traffic deaths in 2020 than any other racial group, even though Americans drove less in the pandemic, period. Experts what? say this is not new. What's amazing is experts. I don't maybe experts are saying this is not new, but experts should tell you that that is not fucking true. The actual studies that are being cited in the article suggest something else, which is that apparently and I'm going to go I'm going to drill down into the study. I don't want to say the wrong thing and then have someone come for me since I'm, I'm checking these people, but I'm doing this in real time. I'm not working with an editor. All I did was just look at the damn studies that were published alongside these reports and the the studies all indicate that when you control for like share of the population, so per hundred thousand people, and you control for age, that American Indians and Alaskan natives, uh, Alaskan native, that's the category there, are in almost every single category the ones that are most overrepresented in these different demographics. And in other cases, when you tally this by like total daytime traffic deaths per 100,000 population 2015 to 2019, you'll get things like whites are actually (laughs) higher than like the total population on average and slightly higher than blacks with again, American Indians and Alaska natives like being the top ones. But there's just, there's no reason for these ridiculous headlines to suggest that blacks are in the worst, most dire shape when there's every indication that they're throughout the study, they are at best in the second most disadvantageous position relative to their share of the population. But the sort of stuff we're talking about here are like traffic fatalities related to speeding. And I'm not talking about the speeding person hits someone who's walking across the street. That is a separate category. And they track that separately too. But all of this stuff is fueled by the prevailing interest in racial equity. But what's interesting it, is that though. these studies do not <laughs> conclude that this is being driven by race in particular, only that these disparities actually exist, which should shock no one that there are disparities between groups. But what's also important is that there are disparities within groups. And the stuff just does not explain itself. And the only reason they continue to publish this garbage is because there is this prevailing zeitgeist, this persistent interest in racial narratives And I think it's actually spawning a great deal of incuriousness. People are forcefully interested in whether or not these disparities exist. 
they presume to know why the disparities exist. But when you read the articles, they're filled with nothing but conjecture. But what is the implication? Is the implication that, as Flavor Flav said, 911 is a joke and nobody's responding? I don't understand how this could be something to be outraged by. How would this be? The intimation here explicitly, explicitly in most cases is that there is a history of injustice related to things like where highways were built like put, putting um, putting highways through, say, a, a minority community. That so there cars is are flying less off infrastructure, the highway the community? Yeah, less infrastructure spending that's happening in certain areas. So there aren't like signs there. Stretch, and there's no it? crosswalks, et cetera. I mean, it just, they, it just you, does not add up when you consider the various categories in which they're actually seeing these overrepresentations. Even in places like there, I, I look, went back and looked at previous studies from some of these same organizations for things like distracted driving <laughs> and like black people are over indexing in the distracted driving ca- category as well. And maybe they happen to own cell phones at higher rates than some of their, <laughs> some of the other populations. It's just all very bizarre. In other cases, it's, are they more likely to be inebriated and are they more likely to get into accidents while inebriated? These things seem to be true as well in different contexts. Like, and none of that stuff seems to be at all consistent with the underlying theme that what's driving all of this is a history of racial injustice in America. The vital insight here, so far as I'm concerned, is if we're actually interested in lowering the number of traffic-related fatalities, there's probably some number of things that we need to do. And the question becomes whether or not it's more important to ensure that the next person who dies in a traffic accident isn't a black person or to be sure that you actually avoid preventable traffic fatalities which I imagine the latter thing is actually easier to do than the former. And I imagine that the latter thing is not only easier to do, it's like actually prudent to try and figure this out and develop a strategy. Whereas the former thing, I just don't, I don't think it's actually possible. I don't even know what that looks like. Does that mean you're making investments in particular communities? The thing that is crazy about this, or one of the things, um, and I point this uh, out in my uh, equity article from Reason from a few months back, um, is that they almost got into an interesting question there, right? Like, the interesting question isn't the rate of fatalities of people based on skin pigmentation um, on highways and crashes. That's just like a a pretty weird thing to look at because how do you untangle it? But like, oh, yeah, the building of freeways in neighborhoods, measure that one. Um, because what is that? That is like the war on poverty, um, you know, building highways and displacing tons of people, mostly poor, disproportionately of color everywhere, especially in big cities, certainly all throughout New York, certainly all throughout Los Angeles, um, via eminent domain. So using government force to displace poor people uh, in the name of helping them um, has actually been, I think, based in, if not racism, then certainly a totally misguided uh, paternalism and statism that really did harm a bunch of communities. That, you can just, you can point your finger straight at that thing. Um, It's just that the conclusion that you're going to get into is that, oh, LBJ's war on poverty maybe wasn't the greatest thing. So, no, (laughs) let's put the brakes on that. And let's instead just sort of like say, there are inequities all around us. Let's find a measurement in which we can see that there's an inequity and then get to one where like, "Ah, see, 
all of this, yeah. shrugging in the direction of all of this, and can you just you're shaking your damn head, and there's no actionable thing associated with it. Uh, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. There are so many policies that actually were based on something like racism, um, including policies that are treasured, broadly speaking, by the left, including minimum wage policies, and yet there's an incuriosity about those things that have a paper trail as opposed to just sort of generalized statistics building backwards there, from. There is a useful bit of whataboutism here. And what about ism in the classic sort of Soviet sense of just like changing the subject is rightfully denounced by people, including me. But there is a what about ism that actually makes a certain amount of sense because it's actually not changing the subject. It's just shifting the subject within the broader subject. So when I saw this on the Washington Post and I sent it to the text thread and then it was on NBC and a million other places. And I went back to mm-hmm. NBC and the Washington Post and I looked, you know, what their coverage was. Because the idea of this is trying to create some sort of equity, not equality, some sort of equity when it comes to black people dying. Equivalent and, outcomes. Equivalent yeah, outcomes. Need, and this is... More, more white people to die or more, yeah, fewer I, black people? One would hope it's just fewer people dying in general, but... This yeah. is the motivation for all this stuff. And it's not, this is not, you know, secret subterranean thing. It's a pretty obvious thing. What I didn't see in the Washington Post, because there's a certain exhaustion or NBC, maybe there was some local affiliate for NBC, but it wasn't in the Post. This is the whataboutism. There were 75 people shot in Chicago this weekend. Imagine that. Think about that for a second. 75 people. The, the celebration from the police in Chicago and the ridiculous mayor of Lori Lightfoot was that 65 of those people were shot and did not die, 10 did. When you, we are talking about everything in the context of race, constantly, exhaustingly mm-hmm. creating a backlash that people do not notice is happening, right? And they're seeing it only in these kind of CRT public meetings. And it is because one person says it and there's an ice Spartacus moment because what everyone is thinking in this, even if there's CRT or no CRT in their school districts, is why is this constant drumbeat of race happening without two sides of an issue being presented or being some sort of debate about it. It's just this kind of being shot at us in this kind of aggressive way. And so I think that like, it's kind of interesting that nobody decides to cover. And I don't care about these dumb, and Camille's spoken quite eloquently and brilliantly about the idiocy of talking about black on black crime, etc. But when one wonders why 75 people in American city. This is like fucking Damascus didn't have that many people shot this weekend. Mm-hmm. Baghdad certainly didn't. I imagine mm-hmm. I, Kabul didn't either. We're so used to it. This is actually the problem. The number of people broken down by race who are driving into retaining walls and breaking their neck is not you know, something that the national media at the Washington Post should be paying attention to is if you are actually, and this is the thing where I think that whataboutism is actually makes sense because it is in the same category, it is in the same context, they're viewing it in the same way racially, then what do you give weight to? Give weight to the thing that is actually impacting people's lives every day in a way that is brutal. It is brutal. Children being shot, mm-hmm. mass shootings mm-hmm. happening. There was a mass shooting on Juneteenth in Oakland. These things are... Difficult Several to mass deal shootings in, in three days in Chicago. Like let me, totally uh, yeah, allow, crazy. allow me it's to crazy. read. It's a, crazy. No one's uh, doing anything about it. Allow me to read a quote. What Joe, Bi- Joe Biden is today, right? Uh, we'll talk about that later. An election night quote from the preliminarily leading uh, New York mayoral candidate, Eric Adams. 
Um, this mm. is at his, you know, semi victory party, although it's going to be months probably before we know totally. He says, if black lives really matter, it can't only be against police abuse. It has to be against the violence that's ripping apart our communities. So mm-hmm. uh, a guy who ran on that every single day. And also who yeah. said that Black Lives Matter is mostly a rich, liberal, white project. <laughs> he, said <He's> that. <laughs> he said that. He said that on the campaign wrong. trail <laughs> yeah. literally yeah. like <laughs> seven weeks ago. Um, that dude uh, just did very well. A former – an ex-cop and ex-Republican and, of course, ex-Farrakhan enthusiast as well. Um, but uh, <laughs> He's a briefly an enthusiast. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that <laughs> he that He didn't actually denounce Farrakhan, which is you know more than a lot of people have done. Does so he I'll even know the Adam's man? a little bit of a cre- – yeah, well, wasn't he formerly like a, a an NOI member though? I don't know if he was actually formally a member, but he defended them in some. They're doing great community work, and he was attacked, and then he mm-hmm. apologized for it. So I, he's not like a Charles Barron type. Um, who mm-hmm. people who know New York politics will know the ridiculous Charles Barron, who I think like had a funeral for Gaddafi in his neighborhood that he hosted one, and he brought Robert Mugabe to City Hall. Did he? Ow. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, oh, Charles Barron's a real, real classy, former Panther, a real classy guy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, so, so like when we look at the, all of these things, like what we don't ever look at is failure and failure of policies that everyone hoped yeah. would work, right? So I mm-hmm. went to a busing mm-hmm. school in Massachusetts and Massachusetts was the crucible of the busing movement and it gave Massachusetts its forever reputation of being a horribly racist place because of when South Boston High uh, went that first day. There was somebody who was stabbed that day. Of course, the guy being attacked by uh, an American flag. And the funny thing is, it's like some white guy who's a total fucking idiot racist, and the guy he's attacking is actually a young black lawyer who made it out of a really tough situation and is like unbelievably admirable and what everybody should aspire to. And he's being attacked with the American flag, and that's what everyone forgot. But what happened to busing in Massachusetts? How did it come out? What did we do? Do we ever talk about? Because trust me, if it was an enormous, overwhelming success, we'd all hear about it all the time. We'd talk about it all the time. Well, this was a great success. This is a good version of integration. Was it a success? I'm not saying it was or it wasn't. I'm just saying, does anyone talk about these enormous social experiments that caused incredible rifts in the community in Boston? You know, this is 70s Boston, where, you know, South Boston still Irish poor Irish people, and then Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, et cetera, are poor black people. And this kind of came together in a really, really volatile moment where a lot of people didn't acquit themselves very well. But at the end of this, what do we, what, do we ever look at these failures? Like, what didn't work? Did the Rainbow Push Coalition, speaking of Chicago, have an enormous amount of successes? They might have. I don't know. I don't know. But we're never looking backwards and saying what worked and what didn't, because right now we're in a moment being drunk on grievance politics and attacking people and telling people they don't have the right ideas or they're saying the wrong thing rather than actually making any strides towards making life for any particular group better. One I, person it sounds like a politician saying that, but it's true. One person who did look at that, Moynihan, uh, two years ago was Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, she had this big uh, did, blowout yeah. cover story in New York Times Magazine. Uh, I just don't trust it. <laughs> whose last uh, – and it was actually a pretty good piece of journalism, but the gloss on it, uh, the last words in the whole thing was, busing didn't fail, we did. 
That's mm. that's a nonsense. Which is an amazing thing yeah. to think about um, because it's just like we didn't try hard enough. You know, we were we were ourselves too racist to make it work, uh, etc. You know, the people uh, didn't uh, accept it, so they left the system because they were probably racist, etc. But um, uh, that is such a reversal from the spirit of reform liberalism of the 1970s that was a very fermenting and interesting period charles peters of the washington monthly who had been who was founded the washington monthly after having helped start the peace corps i believe it was under jfk he's a good goody two-shoes liberal but he started washington monthly magazine in around 1970 uh specifically because he said you know we have to stop with this like judging things based on good intentions um it, did they work? Did they not? Did they metastasize even if they didn't work? Let's look at it that way. And so uh, what uh, ended up becoming known um, pejoratively as contrarianism uh, in uh, uh, journalism on the left um, that was associated with the New Republic uh, chiefly um, really originated with the Washington Monthly. They, uh, he was the original hirer of people like Michael Kinsley, uh, Mickey Kaus, like a uh, whole – I think Greg Easterbrook comes from there too um, – sort of washed from the monthly with that spirit of like, hey, look, we have to check liberalism here because we're not measuring results and not acknowledging failure and learning from it and moving on. That went into – there was a reform kind of um, – Democrat or reform liberalism associated with that and a healthy skepticism about the exercise of government power and systematically, and I've written a few things in the past about this eight or 10 years ago, um, there was a widespread rejection on the quote unquote wonky left of doing that. So people still wanted to, 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 to bathe in the holy glow of their, uh, of their own, uh, wonkiness or nerdiness. And they're just like policy guys, like Ezra Klein and whatnot, but they were also attacking Charles Peters and that spirit. Cause they thought it was too kind of knee jerk. Uh, you're giving the Republicans too much ammunition. So we went from measuring results skeptically and calling into account things that don't work to saying, you know what, don't give Republicans ammunition, and maybe it's us, we just didn't try hard enough. And that's just disastrous. There's, and a final point on this is that, and I'm operating, I haven't read it, on your impression of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' piece on busing. The laziest thing one can do as a journalist, or as a thinker in any way, is saying, we, you know, busing didn't fail, um, we failed. If we failed, busing failed. I'm sorry, guys, but this is how it works, right? This is what people say about communism at various points. Or the that, Iraq War. Mm-hmm. The Iraq War. Like, they resisted what was actually true and great and good. And because they did, they're the failure, not the concept. Well, the concept has to take into consideration that people are difficult, truculent, refuse to actually submit to your airy-fairy ideas. And to say that it didn't fail, I mean, you have to take these things into consideration. One of the the, the current things is, is to say, like, you know, the CRT stuff is a backlash against a lot of racial polarization that's, that's happening in the media and in the corporate landscape, right? I mean, cor- the corporation's constantly talking about race and being very careful about who they put in things. I mean, there was a, what was the character, Snow White today? And I saw Snow, new Snow White, and I was like, it's going to not be a white person, of course. And I think about these things because I, the number of people I've talked to who react to them in a very strong way. And I can't actually say, you shouldn't react to them that way. It's just the fact of the matter is people do, so you have to accept that they do. And, mm-hmm. and all of this stuff, 
And then you say, well, the backlash, it's like, well, there shouldn't be a backlash because this stuff is good. It's like, no, no, no. You have to take in consideration that people react this way and you're going to create this sort of backlash. It doesn't mean the policy is good because the policy never took into consideration actual human beings. Uh, I think that's a, yeah. a, a totally important point. And I, I brought up Iraq, uh, especially for that reason, that's, that's, because well, yeah. so many people like if we just stay the course, I mean, John McCain was like, we, we could stay there for 50 or 100 years. It's fine. It's like, no, like American popular opinion um, matters in these things. And uh, Afghanistan, which we're finally going to leave combat troops, allegedly, on September 11th, and Biden has been well, sticking to that, it seems. so. Far. Well, that's that's what we got to talk about, because the Pentagon is making some strange noises in the last day or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's there hear about those do. noises, because I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm not uh, aware of them. I don't doubt for a second because they played uh, Trump the entire time. They're just like, let's let. I mean, what's his face? Mattis bragged about this to the L.A. Times like Trump wanted to leave. But I was able to talk about, you know, just six months, six months. And I was able to forestall that because God knows Obama too. Yeah. another six months mm-hmm. in Afghanistan is really going to turn the trick. In fact, I think Mitt Romney even said that today, like oh, just another six months in Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, but what's the uh, what are the noises out of the Pentagon, what? Camille? Well, interestingly, I I suspect Mitt Romney was probably talking about this. There was a Pentagon report that came out this week um, suggesting that within six months of an American withdrawal in September, there was an expectation that the government in Afghanistan could fall. And this is following several days during which um, the Taliban seemed to make some pretty significant gains Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. What's very interesting here for for folks who hadn't been paying attention is, I mean, the United States, as I understand it, has less than like 3,000 people on the ground in Afghanistan. So the remaining folks who are actually being pulled down, it's it's not a huge number of people. But the thinking here is that whatever we've been doing for the past two decades, whatever it is, two decades, Those gains could be completely lost in six months per the Pentagon if the United States withdraws its military personnel from the region. Mm -hmm. What on earth does that mean? Now, granted, there's, there's no indication so far as I can tell from the president that the deadline has been changed from September but there September 11th. is some indication, yeah. yes, from September 11th, there's some indication that there there might be some pressure building. At a minimum, it, it's clear that a report like this doesn't materialize without some expectation that it may have some sort of meaningful impact. But I do think that at, a, at, a, at bottom, this suggests that there has been a profound failure um, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. If that is the reality, that within six months of the troop withdrawal, we expect the government to completely fail. I mean, that's a catastrophic failure. To me, it's like, oh, that we should have gotten out a lot earlier. Really? Right. Like, sure. like it, oh, it'll be true, used yeah. as, as, and I understand this, and I've, I've said it uh, on this podcast and in public a lot, um, that those of us who want drawdowns of troops and want less American interventionism, we do have to think about the Pol Pot scenario. We have to think about, like, the uh, catastrophes in Southeast Asia when America left, um, just because you have to be an honest person and and also understand that that will create its own uh, type of uh, political things, but also my God, twenty years, all yeah. that much money that was spent, um, how how hollow, how shallow was this whole thing? You built you built scaffolding out of balsa wood, and then you left town and it crumbled. Um, it's uh, it's pathetic. It's just it's reason we should have got out out there earlier. We can't we can't guarantee peace or or like a facsimile of it um in 
all the world's hell holes. We just can't. Sorry. It, it, and, and it's also important to remember that this is not solely an American failure. This is an international failure. Um, mm. uh, Iraq was, it was hard to get people on board. So you have, you know, the Guatemalan army is on our side and Estonia and look at the coalition we've built. Afghanistan, we had a pretty robust coalition. And, you know, my brother-in-law in the Swedish Navy uh, served for a while in Afghanistan, um, you know, Swedish Navy in a landlocked country, but he was serving in uh, naval intelligence. And they were doing a lot there. The Swedes, the Danes, every European country was in Afghanistan. There was an, a real effort because it was a hard thing to make an argument. And I still think the argument stands that when somebody attacks you in the most catastrophic, brutal, shocking way, from a not-so-sovereign country, because it was controlled by the Taliban at the time, the, you, if, if one must respond, it's completely logical to respond the way the Americans did. That's, that's, I mean, you can't look back and say... In, the first, seven, in the first seven weeks, yes. Like, yeah, I mean, well, you know... That, again, that regime lost the, uh, lost the right to exist after sheltering yes. the terrorists who knocked down the towers. Exactly. Yes. And then after that, it becomes... More complicated. And of course, the parallels to Vietnam and, you know, what, what people said after Vietnam, so many of the war's opponents poo-pooed the bloodbath theory. There was the, it was literally people called it the bloodbath theory and not Cambodia, which had already started happening. But in 1975, when you see these people clinging for dear life onto the rails of a helicopter as it's taking off from the American embassy, very, very good documentary about this, by the way, at the last days of Vietnam. I think it's called the last days of Vietnam. Mm. I don't know. By one of the Kennedy, member of the Kennedy family. Shockingly oh, good. Um, really, really uh, something else. And then, you know, really gets into people that were desperately doing whatever they could to get out. And of course, that bloodbath did happen in a very specific way, the re-education camps, people, the boat people, hmm. et cetera. Whereas we know this is, so the Pentagon saying this in six months is of course an indictment of itself, of what the Pentagon has created over 20 years, which is a balsa wood structure that just needs a gust of wind to be pushed over and a resurgent Taliban filled with fighters, by the way, who were five years old. When 9-11 happened, how has that culture been allowed to incubate? Because that's the thing, right? What you're supposed to do and what America did in Germany after the Second World War is the process, and we, we use this phrase, unfortunately, in Iraq, too, was denazification. We called it debathification in Iraq, was essentially mm -hmm. rewiring the heads of the people in Germany to be, become a democratic people, right? You know, you can argue about how effective that was and whether it was going to sort of happen anyway after the country had been flattened. We had 20 years to win hearts and minds, as the expression went, to rejigger the minds of a generation of Afghans and say, we're here to do good. And if you stick with us, good will come. And nothing like, you know, a positive development has happened to Afghanistan in a very, very long time. So just be on our side here. No. That didn't happen. A lot of people that would be that sort of members of the intelligentsia fled. Uh, but the Taliban is doing its slow march towards Kabul. And it's going to be a, a depressing thing. Because who is the last person who was shot at, at trying to scale the Berlin Wall? Who was the last American who was killed in Vietnam? And that is always the thing. Who was the last person who was killed for a mistake and a failure? And I don't know. I wouldn't say it was a mistake as such. I would say it was a failure and a long failure that should have been recognized a lot earlier. 
you know, the, the, the number of people who died, who are Americans and Brits and Swedes died even too, for what? To get the Taliban exactly where they were in 2001. It's just fucking depressing. Really depressing. Yeah. Um, so other things going on right now, it sounds like one of the, uh, not sounds like I know that one so of the oath, one of the oath keepers, um, pled guilty to riot charges today in the, uh, the events of July 6th. So he's, I believe the first person, um, to, to reach this stage, um, of the sort of criminal justice process. Uh, and the expectation is that will be, there will be many more, um, is a young guy, um, who I believe what 54 year old Florida resident um, who is now going to be cooperating with prosecutors. Um, he, as I mentioned, is an oath keeper um, and there's a bunch of charges here, some of which are related to conspiracy because he had helped to fund getting people there and helped to organize um, events around the riot. Sounds like the judge um, in this particular case made a point of rebuking um Republican representatives who he described as trying to downplay the the violence that occurred that day. Um, and again, we can expect additional prosecutions. I'm not sure if there's a great deal more that can be said about that right now, except that those cases are kind of proceeding as, as we thought they might. Um, it did. I was struck the other day um, when I saw a story out of, I believe it was like the Wall Street Journal um, I saw one about uh, cases being dismissed in New York against rioters from the summer um, and another story about like rioters who were in Portland, like 50% of which the, there was a, a, a declination to prosecute. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the appropriate contrast. I'm not sure if there's any broader interest in this, but that is a thing that is happening. For right me, the, the worrying uh, elements, besides I think it's worrying if you don't charge uh, not just rioters, but looters with crimes, which I think is ha happening a bit uh, more than it used to happen, let's say. Um, that's bad in itself. It's going to make cities uh, more lawless. It's a bad idea. Although, uh, from what I understand from Nancy, who was just in Portland again, that the they're starting to charge people for the first time in a long time, uh, there for at mm -hmm. least some things. Um, so th right. that's... That's helpful, uh, uh, and I, you know, that's me as a libertarian saying it's helpful for people to be charged. But if you go with the expectation every <laughs> single night that you can create violence and and, yeah. and hurt people and and property uh, with impunity, knowing that you're going to uh, not be uh, charged or you know you'll be you'll be sent, uh, that's just bad incentives all around. A uh, thing that worries me actively is what uh, the Biden administration came out with. Last week, I believe it was, which is a new uh, domestic national security blueprint, something or other, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. wanting to give the FBI a whole bunch of new money and surveillance powers to combat the threat of white supremacy and domestic terrorism um, and so on. Um, uh, this is what happens whenever there is a real or perceived sense of threat um, and those Powers, which are usually granted, uh, especially people who feel most threatened to have political power, um, are then used almost immediately. And this is something cribbed from Catherine Mangue Ward uh, to prosecute drug dealers. <laughs> that's just that's how it goes. The FBI going to FBI no matter what. And they're going to use these fancy new powers to save the republic from all the terrible things that are going to happen. Um, I'm not convinced and maybe I've got my head in the sand about it. Um, probably. 
Um, I'm not convinced that as I sit here uh, and if I'd be sitting in any other city uh, in the in the country that I have I'm facing an existential threat from uh, domestic right wing extremist terrorists. Uh, nor do I think that I'm at an existential threat from Islamic terrorists, although there's some around us too, I'm, I'm sure. I just think that there's some low-level threats here in the world and we should not lose our heads uh, over them, even if they've uh, created some traumas. But the FBI is going to be opportunist. Uh, the administration is going to be opportunist. And they're doing this right now and asking for these powers in conjunction with asking for uh, separately, but it'll be used in a similar way. Um, and has a better chance of happening, uh, really, really uh, perniciously uh, strong powers to snoop in all financial transactions going forward. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren really wants to goose it. Biden does. Janet Yellen. Um, so that just any kind of uh, financial activity, PayPal, crypto, um, in addition to usual uh, bank transfers, uh, would have to be uh, reported automatically to the IRS. It's a really vast expansion. And they even have language like that. Like, yes, it's a vast the creation of a, a whole new financial reporting regime internationally we're going to do in in the name of you know somehow magically getting 70 billion dollars more in tax revenue a year which is totally impossible so all these things together um just the zone of privacy um and expected like you can't get in my business is just uh, getting smaller uh i'm worried about that i don't want those changes to happen i i presume that the the capitol hill charges the first ones are going to look impressive and then there's going to be a whole lot of people on like rung up on a single count of conspiracy um and it's not going to look all that great um the amount of prosecutorial heft that went into it and it's going to be you know there will be some uh, quote unquote masterminds or people who were doing some planning but i have the impression there's going to be a lot of trespassing charges I said at the very beginning of this that everybody who entered the building that day should go to jail. I don't actually retreat from that at all. And I think of it this way. If I was in that crowd, would I have gone into the building? Absolutely not. I would not because I'm not mm-hmm. a psycho and I'm not somebody who breaks a law like that. And I knew I would know the consequences. If you don't know the consequences, go to jail. You'll figure them out. Okay. This oathkeeper guy is going to, according to the judge, get somewhere like between five and six and a half years in prison. Yeah, could it could. I guess the prosecution the prosecution has um, not made any sort of request with respect to sentencing, but is going to do so based on the quality of his cooperation. Exactly. The story that I had here was was judge had actually said the time that he is looking at is between, mm-hmm. I think, five and a half uh, or six years. And, and, you know, look, that's a long time. That's not insignificant. That's not yeah. insignificant. I'm not going to make any sort of grand statement on whether somebody deserves that or not. I haven't seen the evidence, so it'd be stupid of me to say that he does or does not. But we have to think, these people aren't going to overthrow the government, right? They're not going to stop the the election from being certified. They're LARPing in a very serious way that they hadn't been doing before, in a violent way that uh, should be condemned and prosecuted in the way that one would hope and expect, right? But, you know, when when you say, Camille, the comparisons to Portland, well, I think that they are apt. And they are apt because this is the difference between Portland and D.C. is that Portland never stopped. It's been a rolling attempt at overthrowing 
the local government and Ted Wheeler. I mean, literally the mayor of Portland's house, uh, you know, building that he lives in his apartment, but he'd been invaded so much that he had to leave. This is not because they want to have a nice chat with the guy. It's because they're trying to intimidate him and it's working, right? And so, um, you know, Matt says to Nancy's point, I haven't seen this. And I, Nancy did actually tell me this too, that they're starting to, you know, make a little reversal here and start to prosecute people. And rather than just, it's like literally catch and release is what, is, what it's been. Should we demand that the Oath Keeper guy goes to jail for five and a half, six years, whatever, because it was an attack on the federal government and because it was an attack on the Capitol and attack on the presidential elections, much more serious, right? But what is the legal category there in the sense that there's no likelihood that this person's ever going to move the government an inch towards his position, not going to happen. And guess what? It didn't happen. So I'm right about this. When people say like, no, 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 it was very serious. Like, no, no, no. They literally just had this forensic am- examination of every frame of footage that was shot and just rounded up everyone. And that was it. And then they were all whimpering in their cells and trying to make deals. Really, really <laughs> tough revolutionaries. This is the fucking October Revolution of 1917 in 2021. No, it's a bunch of fat losers who got arrested and now they're pissing their pants and crying. It's not an existential threat. Is it an existential threat that there are... Existential is the wrong word here. People use that. Is it a threat that there are people on this side who are pissed off and have guns and explosives? Absolutely. Is there a Timothy McVeigh around the corner? Wouldn't be surprised. And you have to prevent against this stuff. Is there a coordinated effort? Not that I've seen. So the question is, is that when people are doing this on a local level, that is equally as violent, that people are dying. There was somebody shot in the Capitol who was a protester. And there was somebody who was shot in Portland and killed by another one protester on another side of another protester, like a sort of Patriot prayer versus Antifa. They're all fucking losers. Somebody shot and killed, right? No one cares about the ideology or the enormity of it. It's like, oh, it's only a local government versus federal. These people are just being let off in Portland. And maybe this is changing and we'll see. Do we think that's okay? Because I know a lot of people in the universe of journalism and the universe of, you know, the place that I live that would be pretty appalled if it was like there was a guy who set fire to a federal building and he's going to jail for six years. I don't think people would be okay with that. I mean, the people that I know anyway, they would be like, this is a coordinated Trumpian attempt on people who oppose fascism. (laughs) I think there should be some parody here Despite the fact that you're like, it was the federal, it was the election, it was the presidential election, nothing's going to happen. I don't care what their idea was. If their idea was to take over, you know, Pluto, it doesn't fucking matter. If their idea was to take over Crimea, they're not going to do it. So who fucking cares? The action itself is bad. These people should be jailed. And I do find it kind of crazy that on the other end of this in Portland, people aren't being rounded up en masse too and saying enough Because this happened one day in D.C., and that was one bad day. And that was one bad day that has not been accepted by anyone in this podcast. It was denounced ferociously by everyone here because it was disgusting and horrifying. But this has been happening every fucking day in Portland, and no one does a thing. Well, they weren't trying to overthrow an election. Well, I mean, so I guess it's okay that you burn down federal buildings and hold an entire city hostage because you're a 14-year-old 
who decided that, you know, Lenin is cool and Che Guevara is worthy of a tattoo as you burn down a fucking coffee shop. Ridiculous. I can leave now. Sorry. Wondering. Yeah, it's some, it's some it's I mean, we, we what was probably, that? What was that probably, grunt? Start to wrap up soon. No, no, was, no, no. I'm just. Kidding. It was. It, it was. Okay. Uh, it was. It was nicely done. We wanted to give it space. Okay, I've been drinking <laughs> a lot, by the way. Just yeah. so no, that's good. Yeah. Moynihan, what is the status of the piece that you were just working on from Florida? Is that is that out yet? When Not out. It's out? in edit now, and it's been. Okay. It's been. You know, it's it's a tricky edit because you know, there's a yeah. lot of. Um, you know, you want to give a, a fair, a fair uh, appraisal of both mm-hmm. sides, and that that can be hard. So, uh, but yeah, but yeah, because I'll, there are I'll, very fine people on both sides. Yeah, because everyone's why. fucking crazy. By the way, um, <laughs> that's just the you know the, the, when you when yeah. you look at the footage, you're like, oh, you're all insane. Um, but yeah. uh, I will give a, a, a you know a shout uh, out you know on Twitter or on the Patreon when it comes out. So. Well, that's well, good. I mean, and also, I suspect our our guest next week, um, provided yes. he shows and doesn't doesn't wuss out again. I mean, that's yeah. unacceptable. Um, we'll we'll be able to chat about some of that. Also, this DeSantis um, requirement that there will be surveys conducted as part of this new legislation that we just signed into law, which is supposed to be strengthening civics education in America. Surveys of people's um, beliefs. So we want the government <laughs> to quiz us good. on our belief right. system. Mm-hmm. Smart. And no, no explanation about how this is going to be used beyond saying that this is going to help ensure viewpoint diversity, um, which, you know, it's flagrantly great. illegal, particularly because it's talking about higher education, whereas mm-hmm. um, K through 12 has a much more uh, stringent standard. And there's not a lot of free speech rights if you are teaching you know, elementary school kids. If you are mm-hmm. a college professor, it's an entirely different ballgame. And Greg Lukianoff uh, from Fire has spoken uh, uh, about this quite a bit and written about it quite mm-hmm. a bit. But like when you get into the point of University of Florida teachers have to tell people what they believe, uh, courts uh, it's going to be thrown out immediately. But I don't think they care. Yeah, they don't. They're they're, they're posturing for for you know national political purposes and not for for yeah. you know, saving the students. I mean, I, I I have a very difficult time appreciating the actual advantage for someone who genuinely cares about these issues and wants to sort of see some kind of material progress in terms of stopping CRT and preventing indoctrination in educational settings that are you know funded by public dollars. I don't get the advantage of losing in court because you're passing sloppy laws. Yeah, <laughs> like it seems like it would be a net bad. Um, I, I saw who was it that shared the tweet? Was it you, Matt, who shared the tweet with Steve Bannon, who was like beating the drum, saying he's thrilled with all yeah, this critical race he's theory? Got, hubbub, he's psyched up about it. Which, I mean, it, it seems a lot like the kind of Tea Party um, furor that we saw some years ago, uh, before Barack Obama even ascended to office. And it seems to me that the that the accomplishments of the Tea Party can be summarized as follows. Barack Obama served eight years in office and the debt grew. Yep. That's right. <laughs> like, it's a bit unfair. Exactly, seriously. Exactly right. A bit unfair. But, but no, but, 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 uh, but seriously, like, I, I don't, I don't get why I understand that this is kind of politically advantageous, but people are, people are excited. They, there is, I think, legitimate upset related to some of these issues, but it doesn't seem well, again, we'll get into this next week. We it's will, fine. but I just want to throw back to what I was saying earlier about the outrage economy. The people rubbing their hands at this are the kind of people who love to make money off of your outrage. Steve Bannon raised how much money for a wall that didn't get built? Um, like mm. literally, 
that's like <laughs> it was well, arrested. Biden administration is trying to fix that now. Uh, They're trying to fix that. Uh, now. It's uh, <laughs> people find it advantageous to their political careers, to their five hundred one c threes, c fours, whatever. My but I think my inbox there is has to be more to it than with, that, right? Um, there is more to it. I mean, the 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 outrage uh, against it is real. I can testify. I've bored you guys with this. Yeah, uh, with the forwarded emails from the stuff in my school district. And I've been warning people for years, like. It ain't Brooklyn, dude. It's going to come to Omaha. Mm-hmm. It's it's coming to you. And it's not called critical race theory, by the way. No, it, I've never seen that phrase used in it. Instead, what the phrase that you hear every single day mm-hmm. constantly is segregation, desegregation, uh, equity, systemic racism, those words uh, and phrases. Anti-racism. Anti-racism. Yeah. And that's constant. And that's a, that's a huge drumbeat in the education of K through 12 kids, certainly in New York, but not only it's, it's, it's everywhere. And people who encounter it in the wild. And uh, I think it was Moynihan mentioning this. Like one of the reasons why there's a backlash to this is that people are, they are seeing it in their media, uh, uh, refracted at them, but they're seeing it at work at like in the HR departments mm-hmm. and their trainings and stuff like that. I'm like, what the hell mm. is this? And so they think, yeah. they think the school uh, is a battlefield in some ways it is, it is um, necessarily, uh, understandably. And so uh, here's one practical, and we don't have to talk about this much longer, but uh, one practical answer <laughs> to your question of like, what could possibly be an outcome of losing in court? Here's the outcome is that, um, and this would be like an outcome that's congenial to radical Camille Foster type of uh, libertarian type thinking, which is that mm-hmm. it reminds everybody that a one size fits all government provided education system is going to create nothing but opportunities for conflict wrestling over who gets to influence it and who gets to not. Uh, and it's going to mm-hmm. therefore like all such conflicts drive people out who are repelled by it. And so it's going to yeah. undermine uh, public support for education. When when Charlotte Mecklenburg, whatever it was, hired Ibram X. Kendi, I, I don't know if that's going to, uh, for $25,000 for 45 minutes, I don't know if that's going to be a local scandal. <laughs> but if that is passed around a lot locally, that's not going to build public support for the system among parents. It's not going to make people like, should I stay in this school? Should I go private? Should mm-hmm. I homeschool? It's not going to make them want to go in more. I'm just guessing. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe that is a goal for people who are otherwise uh, earning a lot of outrage bucks and attention from this is that, yes, by the way, we're also going to be exploding public education as we know it, because in a polarized country, we can't agree on a thing. Um, we will yeah. fight over yeah. any uh, supposedly new, neutral institution until we all hate each other's guts. And imagine, you know, it wasn't Ibram X. Kendi, which is not going to get a New York Times mention, uh, despite the fact that, you know, every mainstream media organization has written about Nicole Hannah-Jones getting a five-year contract, not a lifetime contract, and how outrageous that is. Um, so this is not going to be, you know, reported that, you know, a local you know, school district who probably doesn't have a ton of money is paying that much money for Ibram X. Kennedy to do a fucking Zoom call. Would they report that if, you know, a school district in Brooklyn, because by the way, this should be flattened. It shouldn't have any difference between what the parents believe in one area and what the parents believe in another area. Education should not be, you know, bent by the, you know, mad ideas of somebody 
in rural Texas or, you know, very urban Brooklyn, would they be upset if $25,000 went into the bank account of Christopher Rufo to talk about this stuff <laughs> in the, in the Brooklyn mm. school system? I, I suspect they would. So what you always have to do is remember, it's like, you're not actually judging this based on, you know, what is good for kids in, you know, some sort of pedagogical, you know, worldview that you have. It's about if it's your side or it's the other side, right? I mean, if it's, if it's, mm-hmm. you know, Christopher Rufo in your school district, you're probably um, going to be quite annoyed by that. But I had another point, but I, t- I sort of forgot it because I've been swilling too much tequila. <laughs> so. Anyway. That's yeah. all right. No, it's fine. I, I, I think the important thing and the question for Chris that we will, uh, again, I guess was, we're just teasing all the things now. But the question for Chris is, beyond the banning, like, what do you do about the genuine cultural proclivity that exists mm-hmm. for this? There is an appetite for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, people want critical race theory, if that's what you're going to call it. This muddle of ideas related to anti-racism and etc. Like They want this stuff. There are people who have an appetite for it. They want it in their schools. And that doesn't go away if you pass a law outlawing it. And I don't, and I just don't know that there is any proof that simply passing a law outlawing it is actually likely to diminish the appetite for that stuff. You said banning, by um, the way, as opposed to uh, which reminded yeah. me of the thing that I forgot was about Bannon. Um, all you need to know about that <laughs> quote is that he mentioned the Tea Party and Steve Bannon, who told me. Um, mm-hmm. when we were uh-huh. sitting for a very, like a, I, I think we had like a seven hour interview. It was the craziest fucking thing ever. Um, a lot of fun, a lot of fighting, but, um, I said to him because of his current ideology, you must think the tea Party is uh, kind of nuts, uh, in hindsight that everything that they believed should happen was wrong. And he basically said, yeah, no, he wants more government intervention, more like bailing out this, that, and the other, not a free market guy. And so when Bannon says mm-hmm. that in the CRT context, you realize just how nakedly political it is because yep. he's talking about the Tea Party, which in hindsight he thinks was, you know, ideologically a stupid idea, a bad idea, and not the direction the Republican Party should have gone in. But the only thing he's talking about is that this is an issue that can muster the anger that Rick Santelli mustered that day on CNBC when he called for mm-hmm. a new Tea Party. So. Right. It's the outrage. The outrage yep. is the point. Yeah. There was a, uh, a, a okay. Cato Institute uh, article called the 1994 uh, Revolution uh, 10 Years On that came out like in 2005 that I wrote a review of at the time. And it was striking. It was mostly, you know, good libertarians saying that whatever was libertarian about the Gingrich Revolution yeah. turned out not to last uh, or just to be BS and it got swamped into other things. And the one uh, piece in it that was super sunny, like this was really great. This is awesome came from, I believe it was Dick Army. It might have been from Newt Gingrich himself. One of the two, but I think it was Dick Army. Um, that was all like, hey, look, we got all these new people in the party. We were able to increase the number of Republicans. Uh, people who had been low-information voters like suddenly came in. They started donating all this money. Uh, and we did, it was great. It was awesome. We built this machine here. And like there was no policy associated with it. That is how Steve Bannon is looking at it when he's talking about both with yeah. you and, and today. Like, oh, this is an opportunity. We got – we got another one in here. <laughs> but it's wrong. It's wrong. Because what Republicans don't understand is that they, like, when they're affirmative, 
as they were in 1994 with the contract with America, or as its opponents called the contract on America, on America, was a you know a set of policy proposals that you know some of which kind of uh, you know became policy and some of which didn't. That is an affirmative thing versus what Republicans are very good at doing now, which is being on their back heels and defending against something, right? But what, what, what they do and what their opponents do, and I'm not picking a side here. I think they're all fucking stupid. But what they, what, you know, liberals are doing here, or Democrats are doing here, I would say liberals more in the CRT thing, is push really, really far normalize the kind of behavior and then pull the kind of Overton window back a little bit and Republicans will come to some sort of deal Um, because, you know, banning these things outright is not a long-term strategy. It's not going to work. There's going to be challenges in the court, et cetera. So what they're, they're not doing is actually saying this is what, like, this is the difference actually in, in Florida because you saw today that, uh, you know, the next president of the United States of America, the next Republican, (laughs) uh, said what well we're gonna we're he's doing the thing that nobody else is doing we're going to teach the crimes of communism he said that today yeah and and, Mm. you know we're gonna put that into and you know again it's not a hard thing to do that because you already have to by law in florida teach about slavery and teach about racism and civil rights etc so i imagine particularly in a place like florida where a lot of people are cuban and venezuelan and nicaraguan etc you can probably push that through that's an affirmative way of responding versus most of this stuff is like let's push back and then they'll get a little bit and we'll get nothing right because they're not actually it's not two counter proposals it's people saying this is bad this is indoctrination. And they say, well, no, it's not. You're just trying to prevent people from teaching about racism. Well, everyone's lying in this thing, but only one side is actually putting forth like a curriculum. And that's what's being fought against. And sometimes it's actually not even a curriculum. It's just people's kind of ideas of what could possibly be. But, you know, when you have um, DeSantis actually saying, this is what should be taught, it's the only time I've actually seen someone responding with a counterproposal of what conservatives think that students should, should learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we exclude the president's um, commission, oh, that yeah. came up with an alternative to the 1619 yeah, the project, 1951 which was pretty widely, pretty widely panned. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this, uh, this whole, this whole debate is the greatest possible argument for private schools and school choice more broadly. I mean, we just need more options I mean, we just don't like each other. We don't really want to go to school together. We don't want you to teach our kids the yeah. thing. Just let's the only place this. where there let's actually is CRT is in private schools. Yeah. It's worse. <laughs> it's good. And you can opt out exactly. you can just and, and those people out. don't get yeah. my money. Exactly. Thank God. <laughs> See, that's what's important here. Ruining a generation of wealthy yeah. kids. Khan Academy will be the Walmart of education within a year. <laughs> that's right. Good. Walmart is fine. You can find anything yeah, you need there. I went there, there, there. Whatever you need, it's there. It's relatively cheap. It's very cheap. Shit works. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You name brand TV. Got an extension cord there. And you know there. they make the great. they make the Vizios in the same place that they make the Sony's. It's the same. <laughs> Do they still make Vizio TVs? I don't know anything do. about yeah. that. I don't. Know I have a Vizio TV. I yeah. think I bought it at Walmart. Okay. See. <laughs> Never fly coach, Walmart, but the always fo- shop the at official Walmart. sponsor of the uh, Fifth Column. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. How else can you get snaps of, of people at Walmart on your cell phone unless you yeah, go people there? in rascal scooters go. without masks on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to light up Twitter with that We don't need those shit. anymore, Moynihan. <laughs> we don't need those anymore. We're finished with the masks. 
Um, I, I had a day I today. I've not donned a mask. I've not donned a mask one time. This is the first time that has been true in California. I've gone to restaurants. Yeah. I've gone to, I went to a meeting, um, in SF earlier today. I uh, dropped my daughter off at school. It's been a splendid day. No damn masks. And, uh, I'm feeling fine. Yeah. yeah. Feeling fine. No complaints. All the, um, all so the yeah, chain stores exciting. here have no, no mask. Well, I, Walgreens, uh, Home Depot. Oh, they're out of masks? They're out no, of masks. No, they just, they're, they, you, they don't have to wear them. Oh, oh, you don't have to it's, wear them. If inside. you, yeah, if yeah. you have no, it's great. the, uh, the, the vaccine. And, uh, if you listen to yeah. us, Patreon, uh, you'll hear Matt and I talking about, uh, about this and my contention that the new anti-vaxxers are the people in Brooklyn that insist on wearing uh, masks when everybody's had two shots. They're anti-vaxxers because <laughs> they don't believe that the vaccine actually worked. I did they see did, a whole family yesterday in an establishment all wearing the masks, which it does. I, I'm a little bit, I mean, am I judgmental of these people? Yeah, I don't know. I think so. But I'm just glad that I don't have to wear it anymore because fuck that. <laughs> through with all that garbage. Seriously, let there be a variant. I don't care. I'm done with yeah, that. Yeah, but if someone says anything to you, Camille, you can just be like, what are you, a white supremacist? And they'll be like, sorry. They'll just start giving you money. <laughs> tried that once. Didn't work nearly as well as really? I thought it would. So I'm going to have to do better. You tried it? Yeah. I told, the, I told that story. Yeah. I did. I, sorry, I got in my so You don't board. even remember the things that I say to oh, you. Man. Yeah. Oh, come here. All right. It's racist. <laughs> It's Bull Connor. Well, let's come let's on. wrap this up. We're come we'll come back right. next week. Um, yeah. we'll, we got some more th- things for you. We got some exciting heat. Um, stay tuned for the other thing that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, R.I.P. John McAfee. I mean, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was bumped actually. Not that yeah. not surprised, yeah. but um, guy found dead in his Spanish in a prison, prison cell. A um, Spanish prison. Yeah. Um, yeah. You saw the conspiracies, right? Well, it, well, yeah, he has a tweet yeah, but it's, saying I, that if I'm found, if I'm found dead of suicide, I was, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, of course, that was in 20, 2019, of course. I mean, he's the most, uh, Brian Doherty has a pretty good obit up at reason right now. Uh, uh, check it out. But like, he's been, uh, um, uh, he's an active participant in his own bullshit story yeah. to the end. Um, and mm-hmm. like a lot of, uh, people, he's the exact type of guy who I, uh, instinctively don't like, um, in the sense, although I, I liked him and, and I had a, a, a good time or two with him, uh, but just like all of the oxygen has to suck down into his body in any given room and then like spit into your face with like cigar fumes and everything. He's just so full of himself and narcissistic and everything is this conspiracy he made it very very uh, entertaining but uh, as part of that um it was just like non-stop uh crazy intentional rumor mongering um uh and conspiracy mongery sometimes it would turn out to be true um he, he mm-hmm. predicted his I- eventual uh, indictment by u.s authorities on tax evasion which he <laughs> He had an inside track on that motherfucker. When though. you haven't paid to be taxes fair. Uh, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to I be predict fair. that all the have crimes I've track. committed, the government is not happy with <laughs> Yeah. And he's these predictions like, no one in Cuba. <laughs> yeah. I predict. Like, Are people doing talking oh, about, in, I don't know if Brian mentioned this, but in the obits, that he quite possibly and almost likely committed murder? Murder a man in Belize? Yeah, yeah it comes up. It comes up. Yeah, okay. Just yeah. want to make sure. I mean, it seems, that kind seems important. Kind of an important little yeah. thing there. He might have murdered yeah. somebody. Yeah. It looks like he might. And that he said, did. you know. It looks like he did. I mean, we all, we all only get so much time on this, this horrible 
Actually, it's not horrible. This wonderful ball of dirt hurtling around a nuclear You furnace. bet. Get even less time if you live next I mean, to John McAfee. Which, <laughs> the, the whole of our solar system hurtling around the black hole. In the middle of in the middle of our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is hurtling towards uh, an eventual, he's in his, he's in his telescope. <laughs> you don't want me to do that thing. I'm not going to do that thing. But but I'm just saying, you know, we to die alone. I suspect in your prison cell, like by suicide, having once been a multi 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 millionaire. I don't know. And this is, came at just hours after it was announced that they yeah. were finally going to extradite him to the U.S. to face his yeah. crimes, for which he would likely have died in prison in the U.S. So, yeah, it's not a really happy story. And mm. um, and uh, I'm sure he loves, uh, from wherever, from the great crypto beyond, uh, he loves people uh, thinking and conspiracy theorizing. I think he even left on Instagram uh, just the letter Q. Q yeah. <laughs> like literally did that as his last oh Instagram post because that's how he was going to roll it. Um, but, just shows how uh, dumb everyone is. It's like, you know he's fucking with you, right? Yeah. And, and people are like, oh my God, he's dead and it was posted after he died. And it's like, yeah, sorry, what is the Q thing? What is the connection? The Q, the person, the thing killed him and then posted on his Instagram. I mean, it was him all along. Who yes. Uh, calls coming from uh, inside the house guys. Uh, but yeah, suicide sucks. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry for his wife who I've met, uh, in the past and, uh, people such as Judd Weiss who ran with him as a, uh, vice presidential uh, nominee for the LP, uh, in 2016. Oh yeah. Judd. Was, uh, yeah. um, uh, interesting guy of his own, um, uh, and uh, but uh, I've, I've known him for a long time, so I know he's he's grieving. Feel bad for all y'all. Suicide sucks. So does yeah. murder. Murder is also sorry, but generally inadvisable. Murder sucks. You yeah, don't murder, murder people. people. Then you might end up yeah, dead in don't a Spanish do that. cell. I'm never going to end up dead in a Spanish yeah. cell. Although that's not not the reason why. Apparently, so no. Just don't. It's kind Google. of all part of the same thing. <laughs> Don't Google uh, Mac, McAfee <laughs> and Hammock. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, um, dear. Oh, yeah. nope. I won't do that. Will yeah. not do that. I don't even care. Don't want to <laughs> know. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.